Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Ian Barnes, Head of Portfolio Management at NetWealth. If you're self-employed and don't have a workplace pension scheme or want to build up retirement money over and above your workplace scheme, one of the vehicles into which you can save for retirement tax efficiently is a self-directed personal pension, or SIP for short. As the name implies, with this kind of pension, it is you who is responsible for ensuring it delivers enough retirement income, which is not necessarily an easy task. One of the ways to try and ensure that your SIP does deliver the income you need in retirement is to follow the right investment strategy as you approach retirement. Taha, you've been looking at this. Why is this stage in the accumulation of retirement funds so important? So it's all about transition. So you're coming to the end of um, the kind of growth stage where your only objective is to make sure you grow as capital as quickly and as as in a risk-adjusted way as possible. And you're starting to think about the next stage. And so this is a period of transition because nothing, no decision should ever be a cliff edge. Um, And you have to get this right because... You can make mistakes in the growth stage. You can you can buy a duff stock. You can be in emerging markets for the wrong time. But the reason why that growth stage is so good is because you have enough time to kind of amend for those mistakes. The problem with this kind of pre-retirement transition period is you, you have to get it right because if you make a mistake, you you really don't have enough time to for corrections, and then you'll be entering retirement either taking too much risk, taking too little risk, having suffered capital erosion when you really shouldn't have or didn't want to. Why do SIPs require different asset allocations at this point? Um, because you can do different things with a SIP, and this is, this is the one of the beauties of the product. It's very flexible in terms of what you can do as you enter retirement. You want to be adjusting your asset allocation for the kind of retirement income or whatever you want to do with your SIP. Um, so you need to align your assets with the eventual outcome. Um, income drawdown needs different asset allocation to an annuity, and you know if you're shifting, you're, you're basically shifting from full-blown growth to kind of balanced risk and very outcome focused, I suppose, the, the technical terms. So you're looking at what you want to do with the assets at the end rather than just letting it grow. Okay. Now, what key decisions do you need to make if you're going to go into income drawdown? Um, so, also, again, income drawdown has a variety of options. It all depends what you're going to do with income drawdown. Uh, firstly, understanding what income drawdown is is quite important. It's basically where you leave your assets invested in markets. So you have a proportion of equities and bonds and kind of alternative instead assets. Instead of buying an annuity. Yeah, instead yeah. of buying an annuity, you remain invested. And then you take the investment growth and you either convert that into income or you leave it to grow or whatever. You can do it in different ways. You can take the natural yield, which is just taking the, the income produced from your investments. You can take a combination of your natural yield and some capital growth, which is kind of eating away at the growth. Or you can run down the value of your portfolio, which means you take uh, as much as you want out. And if you're, you know, if you're not worried about the uh, kind of what you've got left in your pension running out of money before you, before you die or before you want to do something else with it, you can just use as much money as you want. Um, so the main thing you have to decide is what you're going to do. Uh, you also have to decide whether you're going to be using your SIP um, for your tax-free cash entitlement. So every um, every person that enters retirement is allowed to take 25% of their entire pension wealth tax-free. Um, some people use their SIP for that. You can use it from your workplace pension or, or defined benefit pension if you have that. Um, if you're going to use it from your SIP, then you have to account for that. And all these different options that I talked about all have different kind of risk profiles. So they need different allocations to mainly equities because that's what's going to be the biggest driver of how much risk you're taking in your portfolio. Um, so you need, you know, if you're going to be taking 
kind of natural yield and capital growth, you need a combination of income growth and balance because you also want to make sure that your portfolio doesn't suffer massive drawdowns as well. Okay, and, and could you give us uh, maybe some examples of the um, kind of asset allocations you might have? Uh, sure. So um, if you just want to take the natural yield, uh, which is the, one of the options I just mentioned, then you want to have your, your portfolio kind of invested in high yielding assets, which which kind of makes sense. But it also means that you want uh, some growth because you want your portfolio to grow at the same time. Um, or if you are just happy taking natural yield and are happy with the size of your portfolio, you can invest in high yield and then kind of use the rest of your portfolio for defense. So you maintain portfolio amount. Um, if you want capital growth, uh, where you use kind of natural yield and capital growth, um, you want balanced risks, there's no big drawdowns, but you also want to have a, a chunky portion of equities. Uh, if you're happy to erode, you can actually take less risk and have less growth but maintain value. Um, so I'll give some examples. Um, so Scottish Widows is a company I spoke to for this feature. Uh, they obviously are a massive pension provider in both SIPs and Workplace, and they have kind of strategies for allowing people to, to enter retirement. So they shift from 85% equities to 30% equities in the build-up to retirement, and they class that as 15 years, but we'll, we'll come to that later. Um, and then the rest in kind of bonds and cash, so that, you know, you've got 30% in risk assets, or the other ones in relatively safe assets, but also high-yielding, and therefore it gives you a kind of idea of what you'd be looking for. Now, um, obviously, if you aren't going into income drawdown, um, I think, as we mentioned before, you purchase an annuity. So what sort of asset allocation should you have if you plan to use your pension funds to purchase an annuity? So this, this is quite interesting. So annuity, basically, it's a, it's a guarantee. It's an insurance contract which gives you guaranteed income for life. Uh, you hand over all of your assets to an insurance company and they just give you an annual income. So asset allocation here is important because it's really good to align your SIP with what the insurance provider kind of buys an annuity with. And the reason for that is that if you have done that prior to the purchase, you will get the best value annuity that you could possibly get. Um, so what that is, is generally long-dated corporate bonds. So if you have your SIP, the amount of your SIP that you're going to be buying an annuity with, in all invested in long-dated bonds, the day before you buy an annuity, you will get the best possible value. What's important is the transition from equities to long-dated corporate bonds, though, because you need to be kind of selling out in a, not a slow way, but a kind of uniformed way uh, and making sure that you kind of preserve as much capital growth as you're going to do not suffer any big drawdowns prior to you paying this annuity purchase. Because as soon as you do that, you have no time to get that money back and you will just suffer with a lower income for the rest of retirement. Okay. And so what kind of time should you do that? Because obviously you certainly don't want bonds in the early stage of the accumulation process, I presume. No, no, absolutely not. So, um, it's, it's actually it's, it's an interesting debate, and every person I spoke to uh, in in this feature in, the, in this week's magazine had a different idea of the time period. So Scottish Widows, who I mentioned earlier, they do it over fifteen years. Uh, that's that's quite risk averse, um, and they do it over fifteen years because you know they are stewards of other people's money. A SIP, and by, by definition, you're doing it yourself, so therefore you can take your own risk and decide how long you want to do it for. The general rule is to do it over a market cycle uh, because that means that you aren't suffering any big uh, drawdowns just the, the the kind of the immediate moment before you, you start making changes. Uh, so that's about seven and a half years. One person I spoke to said three years, um, which again, you can do. And you can also do something where you, you take a limited view on markets. Like, for example, the person said, if you're, if you're doing this right now, you would probably look at the future expectations of markets and go, well, actually, I'm going to start taking risk off the table a lot quicker and a lot sooner than perhaps you would have done two years ago when markets were looking a bit better. Ian, 
What would you say are the key things to consider when putting together a portfolio for long-term growth like a pension? Hi. Well, I guess the, the the most important thing to us is really to to focus on the time frame that you're that that you're looking at. So, you know, a pension structure is the ultimate sort of long-lived structure to to invest within, and you can really take advantage of that. So, um, say if you're in your early forties. You know, you could probably expect to be in the accumulation phase for another 20, 25 years and then hopefully another 20 or so years in the in the decumulation phase. That's a that's a really long period of time over which, you know, you can be investing. And one of the key risks, we think, is that people take a little too little risk in their portfolio. So people think of pensions, they think of security. And actually, you're by reducing the amount of risk that you take in a portfolio in the early years, you're actually putting at risk the chances of achieving your investment objectives because you've got so much time that you can, well, you know, you can afford to to take on a bit more, you know, market uh, volatility because you've got time to recover from that. So we think that that's one of the most important things is to understand the volatility you can withstand. Okay. And what kind of assets should investors starting a SIP consider investing in? Yeah, well, so, so as Tara mentioned, you know, you've got this opportunity for building up a, um, a, a pot of assets that you can draw down later. So you want to be focused more on um, assets with exposure to, to growth. Um, you know, obviously, equity markets are the, the a key component of that, and you can diversify within the types of equity um, assets that you um, that you take exposure to. I mean, it is possible to incorporate less liquid assets, so we sometimes you know um, find people who have taken exposure to um, commercial uh, real estate. Um, we think that you know sometimes you still need to be careful about your liquidity profile if you do if your circumstances do change say your expectations of of how much you'll need to rely on this particular pot say in the future or even from regulatory change so we tend to keep all of our um, assets growth oriented but very liquid at the same time okay and and can I ask what kind of equities would you consider because obviously there's very different types of equities so say you you know you starting a sip it's 30 years or something to retirement you know what kind of equities would be good well i think you need to well, you need to you need to get build a, a decent picture mm. of your overall portfolio yeah. exposure so we tend to diversify on account of a region on mm. account of currency um sectoral exposures as well and then um different style of investment fund as well but the most important criteria for us is um is thinking about you know the cost of investing in these particular assets so for us it's always making sure that whatever you're choosing to do whatever the right portfolio mix is it's doing it as efficiently as possible as time progresses how would you change this allocation as retirement comes nearer yeah so you know i think i think we ultimately it depends on um, a particular client's circumstances and how much they're going to rely on a particular pot of money. So as Tyler's mentioned, if you're approaching a point of retirement and this is going to be your sole source of income, then that's a very different question to some people who invest in SIPs where it's going to be a component of their future flows. Because, you know, ultimately, if you reach retirement age at 65, you may still have a long period of investment 
um, still to go. And for wealthier individuals, they may think of a SIP as being a pot of money that they don't actually intend to draw down. It's just going to be something that they can pass on, um, you know, to uh, you know through through their wills on a tax free basis on their death. So, so for them, remaining in in very growth oriented asset classes will be appropriate. I mean, historically, people used to think about talk about investing. Um, you know the amount of uh, of in fixed income of your age. So if your portfolio is a forty year old, you want to have forty percent in fixed income. We think that that's really risk being mm. too conservative because of the the you know the increased longevity that yeah. most people yeah. will will encounter. But it certainly makes a sense to as you're approaching retirement, as you're coming to a step change in your circumstances, maybe to take a one off piece of advice um, so people can help reassess what they want to how they want to be positioned. Yeah, and I guess as Tom mentioned earlier, a lot comes down to whether you're going to buy annuities or whether you're going to go into income drawdown. I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Now, thinking again about the accumulation phase, what would you say some key mistakes investors should try to avoid making? Yeah. So um, again, we think it comes down to the the importance of your of your time frame. So um, the one advantage that we as in, you know, investors in the accumulation phase have is is time, and you want to be making sure that you're um, using that time frame to compound the returns as strongly as possible. Certainly on a risk-adjusted basis, but accept the market risk that you can take, and be willing, able to compound returns year on year. And the best way to make sure that you're compounding returns efficiently is to make sure that your costs are in line. So um, the, one of the, the, the biggest drivers of investment performance is how much costs are eating into your returns. And you know, we did a study where you know, if, you're, if you're thinking about um, reducing your costs, say, by 1% over a time frame of 10 years, if you assume normal market returns of, say, 5% or so on a gross basis, if you reduce your costs by 1%, then that can um, actually add on Twelve percent of your original capital onto your onto your overall returns, and going from ten years to twenty years, then that one percent reduction in in costs or fees or however you however you think about it can return up to forty percent of your original working capital, which can have a massive impact on your on your overall you know outcome and what you can actually do in retirement. And the the other thing that we think is is important is just you know try not to time the market. Because when you are in there, use the compounding to your advantage. You've got time to bear market risk. And if you're trying to time the market, we always think that you've got – it's particularly difficult because you've got to get the decision right twice. You've got to know when to sell. Mm-hmm. And then it's all too easy because there's always going to be visible risks out there to say, actually, I'm comfortable just sitting on the sidelines. And then you forget to reinvest <laughs> or, the, or the, mm-hmm. the time never seems like the right point in time. So, so we always think, you know – control what you can stay invested and use time to your advantage yeah just out of interest what would be your suggestions on keeping investment costs down i mean i know a lot of people think oh just use passive funds is it just just a case of using passive funds or you know how would you suggest keeping investment costs low well, so there can be different, different ways. I think, yeah, we are we invest predominantly on a passive basis, mm-hmm. and that's not, you know, from a from a, uh, a religious or a philosophical mm-hmm. point of view. Mm-hmm. It's it's very much evident based that that you know those charges that 
active managers you know tend to tend to, to charge are very hard to overcome um, through time it's very hard to anticipate which manager is going to be able to deliver those excess returns but otherwise you know look for make sure that you're stripping out the 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 layers of cost that you don't need so a lot of people will pay for um ongoing advice which we feel is is not necessarily appropriate most most people's financial situations are, are not that complicated. So pay for advice when you need it on a one-off basis. But otherwise, just keep your, you know, just stick to pure management costs. After retirement, if you draw opt for income drawdown, as we discussed above, what kind of asset allocations might be suitable? And I appreciate there are obviously many different variations, but just generally. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, you know, I think historically people have had... Um, a very strong focus on income generating assets you know particularly within the UK there's a very strong yield culture where people are looking for yield generating assets with a bit of security and that intensified after the you know after the financial crisis where you know the the yields available on fixed income instruments weren't deemed as attractive so um, we think a big risk is that you have a, a concentration on an income style because um, too much money chasing, you know, this holy grail of secure yield just inherently changes the characteristics of, of, of the type of securities you're looking at. So, so for some people, an income bias might be, um, might be appropriate. Another way to do it is, you know, you can use technology to try and um, take into account the, the, the nuances of your particular cash flow requirements and stick more to a, a total return focus. So get your overall tolerance for for risk and for you know for for market losses right and then just be aware that you can draw down on capital as well as take the natural income that's generated from the underlying securities okay. so that's, the, that's what we tend to do yeah i, I would add that if, if you do that within a, a sip or an isa then um you don't incur capital gains tax when you sell your profits do you no, like, exactly. yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's no, yeah. you, don't, you don't necessarily need mm. to just mm. focus on the income characteristics. Think about the gains you can get from capital. As long as it's in a tax-efficient environment. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Ian. Some really helpful points. And see the SIP supplement with this week's Investors Chronicle for more suitable asset allocations, how to manage risk, mistakes to avoid, and good funds for your SIP. When you're investing, you hopefully put a lot of effort into trying to select the right investments for your goals. However, stocks, sectors and even regions go in and out of fashion, meaning that market factors and investment styles may be more likely to determine returns. Taha, first of all, what actually are market factors and investment styles? So yeah, it's quite interesting. As you say, um, it's the is the things that are aside from like regions and sectors and stuff like that, and I suppose factors best described as the the underlying reasons why why markets rise and fall, um, aside from like the fundamentals of stocks. So these are the collective kind of reasons why markets go one way or the other. Uh, and a style is is just a different way of buying investments. So when we talk about style, our, our listeners are probably most used to thinking about things like value and growth, um, whereas market factors are things like low volatility and momentum. So momentum is the is the basic concept that whatever's been rising uh, most recently is probably more likely to continue rising in the in the short term future and if you can align your portfolio to take advantage of those kind of factors uh then you know over the long term you will outperform the market average okay so 
how have these factors done, let's say, over the past decade? It's interesting. So if you look at each of the last 10 years uh, in its own calendar basis, so if you look at, you know, 2012 versus 2013 versus 2014, um, it, it changes quite quite rapidly um, as to which style has worked in what year, uh, which is unusual because generally when we think about the last 10 years, everyone will just say, well, growth has been outperforming. Yes, on a cumulative basis, growth have been. Each individual year, there was, diff- there was times when it was minimum volatility, times when it was growth, times when it was momentum, and in 2016, times when it was value. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting to see how the actual underlying reasons why markets are rising changes year on year, but on a wider scale, it looks as if one thing has dominated. I suppose the big question is, that's the past. So how do you know which ones to tilt to going ahead? It's, I say, um, obviously, past performance never is a guide, as, as we know. Um, what What is good to look at is what you, by looking at these 10 years, as, as I mentioned, is you can understand why one factor or style outperforms another in one, in one year or one period and, and why. And there, there are lots of reasons, you know, growth works t- best in times of low economic growth, which is kind of counterintuitive, but also true. Um, value works best in times of good economic growth. Uh, low volatility and quality um, have defensive characteristics. So when things are looking a bit hairy um, or if there's volatility in the market, low volatility stocks tend to, to outperform. So what does that mean going forward? Well, firstly, um, as with everything, you never back one style or factor in, t- in its entirety. You should always keep a blend. Uh, these these things, are, these, these styles and factors are known as risk premium. So if you hold them all in the long term, you, they will outperform the market average. So if you hold a blend of them in the long term, you should also then outperform the market average and in a kind of diversified and risk-adjusted way. That being said, there's always... Um, times to tell you know what 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 kind of professional investors are are leaning towards so as i said minimum volatility and quality for defense if you're if you're worried about the the outlook for markets that could be sensible uh a lot of people backing value um which i say they have been for many 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 years um but value still remains cheap as a as a style so you could do that as well how would you go about tilting your portfolio to them uh so, so factors um because they're kind of mathematical reasons why markets are performing uh they're, they're best kind of well i suppose not best one of the easiest ways to get exposure to them is is via algorithms which are, are best formed in etfs so iShares um, and other etf providers do do this as well but uh one of the, the finest ranges is the iShares edge range uh which can give you access to most of the factors uh that i mentioned across different regions on a global basis and stuff like that uh there's more details in the magazine on the ones that I've chosen. Uh, there's also another one that was highlighted to me, which is the UBS FTSE Rafi Developed Index Fund. And this is quite an interesting one because it uses an algorithm that then weights according to valuation metrics. So it rather than kind of allocating the most to the uh, the largest stock, it allocates the most to stocks with uh, the better price-to-book ratios, uh, dividend yields, uh, and, it, and it kind of constantly adjusts, well, it adjusts on a quarterly basis. So it, what you should be doing really is selling high and buying low. Uh, which we all know is is the best way to to increase your returns. Ian, how important do you think market factors and investment styles are in determining returns? I think it depends how how narrowly you 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 define the the factors and uh, and and different sort of risk premium. You know, I think I think historically investors. Um, you know, paid a lot of attention to the the implicit drivers of 
of asset class returns or stock returns. So they maybe didn't define them quite as as factors, but you know you knew that something's exposure to a particular um, risk premium um, was was going to be a driver of returns at different times. Um, taking that further onto onto factors, we think it's you know it's a question of um, whether or not you can you can isolate a particular factor exposure beyond all of the other things that might be going on in 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 affecting a particular company's return so by trying to target one exposure you might unknowingly be exposing yourself to 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 a bunch of other things i mean we 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 just think that the most most important broad factor exposure is really getting your market exposure right that's always going to be the most important driver and then the nuances within that are going to be um are going to be somewhat less important Okay, so I suppose how much consideration should you give these market factors and styles? When well, well, I think it's I think it's important. If you think that mm. they're going to be helpful to diversification, then then that's great. I mean, you know, we you, you can talk about the um, say the momentum factor, and in isolation, that's been proven to be um, you know to add value through time. So exposing yourself to something with earnings momentum and um, price momentum can be a good thing. It tends to increase the volatility of returns quite a lot. And you might find that it's working poorest at a point when the rest of your portfolio is also coming under pressure as well. So it sort of amplifies your your exposure to market um, risk at times. And so that's something that we think is, is um, slightly difficult. The other thing is just a question of you know, liquidity. So some factors work better in in environments where um, liquidity is is plentiful, and others perform better when you know when you're when you're finding that you know liquidity is is less available, and you know making sure that you're balancing that with other moving parts within a portfolio is is pretty important. Okay, so with that in mind, um, what are the risks of having biases to factors and styles? So. Um, I mean, we we will start with a with a sort of naive benchmark as the as the starting point. So a traditional sort of market cap index. Any any movement away from that, you could be thinking about you know is is a risk. But most investment risk can be put down to not understanding the assets that you're invested in, um, poor timing, or not judging your your capacity for loss appropriately. So sort of selling selling an asset when you don't want to, but. So in, in investing in any of these factor products can sort of build on some of those risks. So, you know, different styles of value products work well at different times. So you might find yourself in a, in a particular product. If you don't really understand how it's being built, then, um, you know, then, then it might not work for you. And the financial industry has always been very, very good at building, building demand for, for a product that they have to sell. And so we tend to be relatively cynical about some of the, you know, some of the the, the, the factor-based strategies that are now available or, or um, smart beta. So um, we just think that understanding what is actually going on in, a, in an instrument is mm. probably the most important risk. So do, do you think these funds are, are, are worth any consideration at all? Or? No, we do. So we, mm. we think, you know, if there's, a, if there's a particular risk within a naive benchmark, so say take US equities where they've got a, you know, a large allocation to 
um, the technology sector, which has been performing extremely well. People start to worry about um, how efficiently the market is sort of pricing some of the risks that are inherent in that in that sector. So if you think you want to be invested in U.S. equities, but can be aware that you know one particular sector is completely driving all of your returns and you want to step away from that then one of these one of these strategies that specifically target other characteristics can be very helpful um you know i think i think we we probably haven't seen um in a long enough period of time that some of the newer factor-based strategies have been working to understand how they work through the cycle because quite often these um these approaches work well in their development phase and then once the products are launched and you know it doesn't it doesn't necessarily seem to work in a in 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 quite the way as intended but we think they can be helpful and we do in fact own we do own one of them in our portfolios okay well, can you which one is that well, so 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 to step away from the bias of the of the tech sector we did look at the um value um strategy from uh, from iShares okay interesting now you mentioned that ultimately factors and investors aren't the most important things in portfolio construction so just I suppose just generally and briefly, um, you know, what are the key important things to think about when constructing a, an investment portfolio? So, so for us, it comes back down to efficiency, that you've just got to make the things that you can control. One of them is costs. Make sure that you're not, um, you know, giving yourself too high a hurdle for your, for your decisions to overcome in terms of the costs. The other thing is whatever your approach is, just try and make sure that it's as disciplined as possible. You know, it's, it's all too easy to, you know, to... to um, you know, read about the um, the different challenges that the market environment is facing, um, but try and stay disciplined to your investment approach. And overarching that, I get all sort of built into that is just this idea of um, avoiding you know false narratives. Like the investment world has been has been very very worried about the prospect of inflation and what that could do to bond returns for nearly a decade now, and yet you know U.S. equities have outperformed commodities which you might think would be sensitive to inflation risk by an extraordinary amount over that period um, and you know guilt yields 10-year guilt yields are still knocking on one percent so you know just just be just don't get tempted to to read too much into into some of the narratives that might be you know uh, trendy at a particular point in time thank you ian some really helpful points if you're thinking of investing in a fund you probably want to know among many other things what its strategy is and how it's performed against its peers and relevant benchmarks. But believe it or not, getting this information is not necessarily straightforward. Taha, why can it be so difficult to get this really basic information? Well, it, it just isn't there. And it's, it's inexplicable as to why. You look at fund marketing documents uh, and it's just full of poor descriptions, misleading benchmarks, inconsistent benchmarks, which is the worst thing. Um, so, you know, they had we had examples before about absolute return funds that say they're going to beat LIBOR plus three. But then you look at their fact sheets and they just put LIBOR on there because obviously if you take away the three, it's a lot better. Um, and, you know, just how they're allowed to get away with that is uh, is bizarre. Fund descriptions, um, I, I highlighted one in this week's magazine. The aim of this fund is to provide long-term capital growth. A bit vague, isn't it? I, I mean, yeah. it's... it's, it's isn't fact, that what everything does? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah it's why, it's why um, you invest. Absolutely useless. Uh, it, it's fascinating because, you know, uh, this fund, I'm not going to name which one because it's not alone in its crime. Um, 
you know, if they're underperforming the benchmark, they'll be straight onto the microphone looking at the nuances of their strategy as to why they've underperformed their benchmark for three years in a row. But when it comes to their own documentation, they can't be bothered to explain what those nuances are. And it's just a bit, it's a bit ridiculous. It's, it's lazy. You know, it takes time and effort to realize what a fund actually does. I've been doing this for years and it still takes me a long time to realize what a manager is doing. And I have access to a lot of information that private investors don't. I suppose if you ask asset managers, they will blame regulation and they will say, you know, that it's too stringent about what they're supposed to put onto these fact sheets and um, kind of key investor documents and key investor information documents and things like that. But regulation is, is a the minimum amount asset managers have to do. They can still go above and beyond that and actually help investors understand what they do and they, they actively choose not to. Okay, but um, this situation actually looks like it's going to improve. How? Uh, so this is um, uh, another part of the FCA, which is the Financial Conduct Authority, the Financial Services Regulator. They've been doing a study and an investigation into the asset management industry for um, well, three and a half years now, I suppose. And uh, this is uh, another jig- another piece in that jigsaw. Um, so they are... Well, they've said that asset managers and fund providers should now uh, make sure that their objectives include relevant information about the investment strategy. And that could go as far as, you know, being explicit about saying whether a value manager or a growth manager uh, and explain how that's run. Uh, They should be concise. They should not use jargon. On the benchmark side, benchmarks that they choose have to be relevant and consistent and consistent as in going back to the libel point I made. So if they use a benchmark, they have to explain why and then use the same benchmark on all documents that they have about that fund. If they don't choose a benchmark, they have to explain why they haven't chosen a benchmark and provide a comparative tool and some kind of guidance so investors can judge performance of the fund. Uh, also, I think this is probably one of the smaller bits, but the quite important bit Um if there isn't a benchmark, but there is an implicit benchmark, as in if the fund manager's pay is linked to outperforming a benchmark or if the risk profile of the fund is linked to a benchmark, they have to be clear about that. And therefore, they, they're calling that an implicit benchmark, which means that, you know, they have to declare that and then fund uh, well, investors can use that as well. That sounds um, good. When do these rules come in? So for, for newly launched funds uh, within three months and for existing funds within six months. Uh, so we should see, you know, some changes this year. OK, so quite soon. So... Big question. They sound like um, good ideas. Will they actually make a difference? I suppose it's wait and see. It's interesting to see how it will. So um, the FCA hasn't actually been massively prescriptive in how they're asking fund managers to do this. Uh, and some people think that's leaving the you know the ball very much in the industry's court. Uh, and as, as I explained at the beginning of this section, uh, when left to their own devices, they're not exactly brilliant about it. It's, so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, but the, the, these are new rules and these are new requirements. So there should be some changes. It's whether it's going to be enough, I suppose, is the big point. Because um, some of the comments in the consultation, they were kind of petty. You know, one company said that they didn't think the additional compliance work would be would be worth the benefit to investors quite frankly they don't get to decide that um they don't get to decide what's good for consumers and what isn't consumers get to decide that so they might there's a risk they don't take it in the spirit in which is intended thank you taha and you can see his full report on how funds will have to improve their transparency in this week's funds news that brings us to the end of today's show, but see our special SIP supplement for more on how to generate a good retirement income and read more about market factors and investment styles in this week's Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.